you would do me the favor of opening up to Mark chapter 10 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one set in the pew, the back of the pew right in front of you. You can use the index at the front to find the New Testament Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 10. This morning, we're going to catch a conversation that Jesus has. I don't believe you. This morning, we're going to talk about a conversation that Jesus has with the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, about marriage, divorce, and about children. And before we get into the text, uh, just a couple of things. First off, as a pastor and uh, as a part of this church for um, going on nine years now, it's been a long time since I was a visitor in a church. It's been even longer since I was a visitor and not a Christian. Uh, But I do remember what it's like, and I definitely know what it's like to hear what the topic is for the morning and then feel some sort of existential dread. Uh, Talking about divorce is a loaded conversation, a difficult one. Um, And it can be a challenging place for many of us because divorce is not just a topic, it's a facet of our life. It enters into our families. Uh, Sometimes it's a part of our own story. And so I want to just state a couple of things before we even look at the text here. First, I want to tell you that I am approaching this passage this morning as a sexual sinner. I'm not up here to judge I'm not up here to teach these things, to condemn those who have experienced other things, because I know what it's like to be sexually unfaithful. Now, the reason why I say that is because before I was a Christian, I was relatively sexually active. Uh, Not only that, but when Jesus talks about adultery, which is a primary issue in our text this morning, he does so taking it not from the level of an act that happens in your life, but an instantaneous thought in your heart. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if we even lust after, if we even sexually desire another individual who is not our spouse, we have committed adultery. Okay. And so I'm standing up here as someone who knows what sexual infidelity is like, knows what sexual immorality is like, as a sexual sinner who needs Jesus. Okay. That's the first thing that I wanted to lay out. Um, The second thing is that as we look at this passage this morning, uh, it can feel like something we want to avoid, and I want to point out the primary reason we want to avoid it is not because it's unrelevant, but because it's so relevant, right? There There are passages in the Bible where we go, I don't know what to do with this. This seems unapplicable, and we tend to avoid those passages. That's why you don't generally open up to Leviticus for your devotions in the morning. But this is a different type of resistance. This one hits too close to home, and that can be challenging. But it's worth pointing out two things in that idea. One is that the reason it hits too close to home is because we already instinctually know the damage that divorce does. Not just instinctually, experientially. We are the product of these things. In fact, uh, for many of this, many of us, we uh, have experienced deep pain in the context of divorce. And then second, 
G.K. Chesterton helpfully said that we don't want a religion that's right where we're right. We need a religion that's right where we're wrong, right? And so as we go into it this morning, um, I, I, just, I just want to express uh, that our goal is to understand again what it looks like to follow Jesus. This entire passage, although it deals with marriage and divorce and children, is embedded in a longer section of Mark that is focused on the disciples, not the crowds. It's focused on those who have chosen to follow Jesus and not merely, uh, not merely uh, like the rest of the gospel, those who are just getting a first time hearing. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, this is a good chance for you to understand how the Bible views things like marriage, but it is not the first thing you need to understand about the Bible or about Christianity. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, his opinions on your sexuality holistically do not matter. But if he did, if he did, then they are of utmost importance. And so the question, if you will, that we're going to answer this morning is how should those who seek to follow Jesus view marriage and children? I'd like to read the passage together now, and then we'll pray. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing to him children that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. God, we hold on to, we long for, we stand upon the promises you give in your word. That when we open your word, when your word is read and spoken that your spirit will come and will teach us. We desire, Lord, uh, that you would speak to us this morning. And as this is an issue of some significant tenderness, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who speaks softly. You are the one who speaks with gentleness. You are the one who demonstrated your love for all sinners, no matter the type, in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we can trust you with our lives and with our stories. We can trust you with our fears and with the scars that we have. And we can listen and we can hear and we can learn. We pray that you'd help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So again, we find Jesus out and about and teaching, but, a, but notice, just like we've been seeing week after week after week, the focus here is not on the incidentals of the conversation that happens out in the crowd. The Pharisees come unplanned and unprompted and ask a question here. Jesus responds to it, but the author is drawing us into what happens next. The disciples come for clarification. In the house has been this repeated refrain that we've seen throughout this section in the gospel because it's about the private conversations between Jesus and the disciples. Same with the children being brought to Jesus, that he may lay hands on them and that he may bless them. It is the disciples who stop that. It's the disciples who rebuke the parents and say, Jesus doesn't have time for your children. It's the disciples who Jesus sits down and goes, you completely misunderstand. Okay. Again, this section is primarily and focused about what it looks like for us to follow Jesus Christ, to take up our cross, to make him our Lord, to walk in his ways, to be a follower of Jesus um, but as he is teaching uh, to the crowds, generally the Pharisees come and they ask him a question. I want you to notice in verse 2 it says that they came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Their intentions here, they're coming not as learners of a teacher saying, teach us about this topic. In fact, they're not even coming in the sense of testing because they're interested in Jesus' opinion on what was clearly a controversial issue of the day. They're not just coming to Jesus and go, what do you think about this issue of divorce? What's your understanding of these things? They're coming to test him in the sense that they're coming to trap him. Okay. And the reason uh, is, is uh, a little bit complex, so let's just lay out the layers. First off, I want you to notice here uh, that it says that he left there in verse 1 and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Okay? That's the area that we call Perea. Okay? The reason why that's significant is because this is where Herod Antipas is governor. And if you've been studying the Gospel of Mark with us, you know that this is the same man who put John the Baptist to death because of issues involving divorce and remarriage. Because Herod Antipas and his sister-in-law, she had left her husband Philip and become Herod's wife. And John the Baptist challenged him on that and said that it was inappropriate, that it was wrong, that it was an adulterous relationship and especially Herod's wife, was so irritated by that constant refrain of unrighteousness that she demanded that Herod put him to death, and eventually that's what happened. So do you understand here why it's significant that in the territory of Herod they would get Jesus' opinion on divorce? They're trying to put him on the wrong side of a very powerful man. Okay. Uh, not only that, but also... When they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Don't ever forget here that the lawful here is not civil law. It's not, is it legal in the land of Israel or in the Roman Empire to divorce? It's, is it aligning with the Mosaic law? Is it biblical? Okay. Here, they're hoping that Jesus will in some way distance himself from the writings of Moses. And then they can go, oh, we always knew you were a heretic. Right? That's what they're looking for. But there's a third layer that goes in here, and that, much like our day, was that there were diverse views on what was appropriate grounds for divorce. 
In fact, in that first couple of hundred years of the first century, um, both BC and leading up to the destruction of Israel in, the, in 70 AD, there were two reigning views. Both of them go back to two major rabbis. Okay? So Rabbi Shimei believed that in the Old Testament when it said that if a man finds uncleanness in his wife, he may divorce her, that that uncleanness must be issues of sexual immorality. It was a relatively narrow. Divorce is only justified in the case that the marriage has already been broken, if you will, by sexual infidelity. Okay. But Rabbi Hillel came along and he said, no, it's broader than that. Uncleanness is anything that you don't like about your spouse. Okay? It was a much more liberal position. It also became the common held position of Jesus' day. Okay? And so uh, the hope is here, at the very least, even if they can't trip Jesus up by being able to say, hey, Herod, have you heard this guy? Even if they can't deny or uh, have, see Jesus deny his alignment with Moses in the Old Testament, at the very least, they can split his audience on a hot topic issue. Okay, that's the hope. Um, but what's significant here is that Jesus responds um, by asking a question. And this is something we often see in Jesus. People come and ask him a question, and he responds. He gives an answer, but his answer is actually another question. Okay? Notice what the question is here. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? Okay. Now notice there, his impulse, his instinct to answer this question is to go to Scripture. That's, in fact, another impulse that we see consistently with Jesus. What does the Bible say? What does the Old Testament say? How do you read the scriptures? Have you not heard? Is it not written? These are repeated refrains in Jesus's conversations with other people. But here he does something a little bit more specific when he asks, what did Moses command you? He lays, if you will, a little trap of his own. Okay. The passage that was debated by the Jewish teachers of Jesus' day about divorce is Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay. In fact, that's the one that they bring up here when they say Moses permitted us to divorce a wife. But we see here that that's not the passage that Jesus is looking for. In fact, he doesn't want here a command about the possibility of divorce. He wants a command about the reality of marriage. And so when he responds here, they said, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, he says, but there's a more important passage. There's a more significant beginning place. In fact, we can see the distinction here represented in the answer of the Pharisees. Jesus says, what did Moses command you and they say, well, Moses permitted divorce. That's not the same thing. Permission and commandment are categorically different things. Okay. Jesus is looking for a commandment. In fact, there is a commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 24, but you have to dig pretty deep to find it. Let me paraphrase for you the entire passage. If a man finds some uncleanness in his wife, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. And if she remarries another man and that man finds some uncleanness in her and gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away, then, here's the command, then her first husband cannot take her again. It is an abomination. Okay. 
In other words, the context of what's happening in Deuteronomy 24 is ultimately about protecting women from men frivolously divorcing them. The first thing is, by a woman walking away with a certificate of divorce in hand, she has the legal right to remarry. Her ex-husband can't claim that she's been unfaithful, that he never asked her to leave. She can't be condemned as being adulterous when it's actually his decision that has led to the divorce. And then second, he can't treat her as something to send away and take back whenever he likes. Okay? In other words, it's concerned in protecting that second marriage being unthreatened by the first marriage. Okay. But the point is that it is permissive in nature. It makes a legal allowance. It's an issue of uh, the lesser of two evils, if you will. Okay. But Jesus is looking for a command. And this is another thing that we see that Jesus does consistently, uh, is that when he looks for precedence, when he looks for commandments, when he looks for the grounds of an issue, he goes all the way back to the beginning. He goes to Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, I would suggest to you that Jesus' moral logic here is we cannot talk about divorce until we talk about marriage. We can't ask, what is the legal grounds to end a marriage unless we ask, what is marriage about? What are we trying to accomplish? They're looking for, uh, for boundaries and limits. How much will you permit me? How much am I allowed? And he says, what are we trying to do here? What is the goal? What is the purpose? Why marriage at all? Okay. And then second, to find that, he goes to Genesis, the beginning, creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We see him do this again in um, Matthew 19. And in Matthew's presentation, uh, he goes here and he does the same thing. And so notice what it is. Verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, uh, notice there that Jesus is going to Genesis 1.27. This is the creation of human beings. Okay, And so what happens in the creation story is we have this creation of the world, and at every stage we have a pattern. And God said, let there be light. And then what God said became, and there was light. And then God looks at what he's made, and he saw that it was good. And the pattern is consistent. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. And then we get here, and the pattern changes. Here, Genesis 1.27 says, and God said... Let us make mankind in our image. In other words here, uh, instead of like the other days of creation, there being this spoken creative act, here there's a dialogue preceding the creation. Let us make mankind in our image. So in the image of God he made them, male and female he made them in the image of God. Okay? And so here, at the very beginning, we see the reality of gender, which leads to the reality of sex. The reality of biological sex, which leads to the reality of marriage. Okay? And then he quotes from Genesis 2.24. This is after Adam has been brought Eve, who's been made out of his side, a suitable helper for him. And God speaks over their wedding, if you will, and says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay. 
And so, again, Jesus' way of thinking about this issue is first, not to say what is permissible in divorce, but what is marriage about? And we see uh, first and foremost here that it is something that God has designed. In fact, that runs through this entire thing. When he says what God has joined together, let not man separate, the idea here is we can't just think of this as being a human institution policed by human laws. If you're a Christian this morning, let me put it this way, that if we're going to think about marriage and divorce, we have to be interested in Jesus' opinions. To follow Jesus with our sexuality means that he calls the shots. It means that he defines what is, what should be. And here's the thing about creation. Biblically, the concept of creation demonstrates intention. Okay, it's not just God made it this way, but obviously God made it this way for a reason. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that when God made humankind male and female, when God made Eve a suitable helper and brought him to Adam, brought her to Adam, uh, when he spoke and said, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, that that implies not just an incident, but intention, a plan, a purpose. A goal. If we're going to think about our sexuality, we have to understand what it's for. That has to be the first question. This is an essential question. Okay, we have all had the experience where you're rooting around in somebody's kitchen drawers and you find an object and you don't know what it is. You know it's some sort of a kitchen appliance, but you don't know what it is. Why don't you know what it is? Because you don't know what it's for. Purpose shapes meaning. It gives us identity. It helps us to understand what something is. And so the question is, what is marriage for? Here, God designs this institution and he shapes it, and its purpose has to be answered first. Now, we don't have uh, much time this morning to lay out a broad view of sexuality. So again, let me encourage you that if this is of interest to you, if it's something you haven't thought through, if you're curious what the Bible actually says about sex and gender and what it means for us, I'd really encourage you to come out on Wednesday nights. I know it's far away. I know it's up north. Uh, but, but then we'll have the time to kind of lay this all out, to walk all these things through. But what I want you to notice for this morning is first and foremost... If we're going to think about divorce in our lives, we have to begin with what marriage is. We have to focus there. The implication that Jesus makes here is that God is accomplishing in marriage the two becoming one, and that divorce is effectively moving in the wrong direction. Okay. That the goal of a man and a, a woman becoming husband and wife is that the two would be one. And when it says there in Genesis, the two become one flesh, that's not just a metaphor for the sexual act. It's a description of a particular type of intimacy, a sharing of all life, two destinies becoming one destiny, two strengths becoming one strength, two weaknesses becoming one weakness, two debts becoming one debt right? All of those things. It's the joining of two lives and the ambition to function and operate as one. Now, why does that matter? Why is God so interested in marriage? 
Now, we could look to practical reasons, and people often have, but I want to give you a theological reason this morning. Because for us, the answer to the question, what is God doing in marriage, is revelatory in nature. God made marriage a particular way to say a particular thing. As a side note, for us as Christians, all ethics are symbolic ethics. We're called to live the way we live, whether to do or to not do, because God is who he is. That's why in the Old Testament we have this repeated phrase, be holy as I am holy. Okay. In fact, go back to this idea of creation of male and female in the image of God. What does it mean to be an image? An image images. That's what it does. It in some way reflects. It in some way puts on display. It in some way represents who God is. And so, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is also reflecting on the realities of marriage, he does the same thing that Jesus does. He goes as well to Genesis chapter 2. In fact, he quotes the same sentence that Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then he says this. He says, this is a great mystery, brothers and sisters, but I'm telling you that this statement, the one made in Genesis chapter 2, pertains to Jesus and his church. In other words, marriage... Images in the sense that God desires to put on display the relationship he wants to have with us. Now, marriage is not the only way he does that. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus' primary title for God is what? Father. Parenthood and the child relationship, as we'll see in just a minute, also mirrors that reality, also points to those things, also images God. But notice that those relationships are also built around these ideas of gender and sex, aren't they? The idea of parents and child stems from the reality of male and female and the two becoming one. It's all here. It's all focused in the same idea. This is why throughout the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his bride and unfortunately, his unfaithful bride, his adulterous bride. This is why, again, in the New Testament, Paul says that marriage is significant in our lives because it either reflects God's relationship with us or it doesn't. Okay. If we start there, it changes the conversation we have about divorce. Now, again, when they answer the question, he says, what did Moses command you? They say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. Okay. One of the differences between Genesis 1 and 2 and Deuteronomy 24 is what happens in Genesis chapter 3. As Adam and Eve choose not to obey God, as they eat of the tree and break the one commandment that God has given, and because of that, introduce sin and death and judgment into the world. Okay? That changes things. Hardness of hearts here, as Jesus is referring to, is, just, is not merely a hard-heartedness that we have towards one another, although we do, whether it's reflected, reflected in selfishness or indifference, uh, whether it's reflected in uh, taking advantage of another person or not coming in to help. In all of these ways, 
In all of these ways, we see hard-heartedness, but the phrase here is more significant than that. It's not just hard-heartedness on the horizontal between a husband and a wife, between a neighbor and a neighbor. It's also in the vertical. Now, we're not interested in God's designs and purposes and plans, but our designs and purposes and plans. We're hard-hearted and resistant. We, as it says in the book of Romans, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the scary thing about that is not merely that we play God when there really is a God, but also that we are not as good or as wise as God. And so our plans and our intentions are harmful. They're harmful for us. They're harmful for other people. And again, let me remind you this morning that we all know that fact about divorce. We know what it does. Some of you are the children that grew up in a divorced family. You still are shaped by that pain. And so, notice again Jesus' logic here. He says that this is a divine reality, that marriage is both divinely instituted and it operates via divine command. Look again at verse 7. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, here's the thing. That's extreme. The limitation that Jesus sets on divorce here is complete. Okay. Now, if you read in Matthew, there is an exception, except on the case of sexual immorality. And I would suggest to you that the reason that doesn't occur here in Mark is because it's already implied. It's already understood. Going back to Deuteronomy 24, that idea of uncleanness already operates and opens up that way. In other words, an adultery, or adultery in the context of marriage breaks marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that if somebody is unfaithful to you in marriage, you're commanded to get a divorce but it is permissive, it is open, it is an exception. Not only that, but in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we have another exception given. Paul says, if you are married to a non-Christian and they want to stay with you and continue that relationship, then keep it. You have a, a presence and an opportunity to be a witness of Christ in that marriage. He says, but if they leave you, if they abandon you, if they say, you're no longer the person that I married, I didn't marry some sort of Christian, and they leave, Paul says, you're no longer bound. Okay. But even if we include those exceptions, we're talking about a relatively narrow thing. This is not irreconcilable differences, is it? And it's definitely not no-fault divorce. It's tight here. It's constrained. But I want you to notice that it is also... It is also just, and here's what I mean. In Jesus' day and age, adultery was not something you could commit against a woman. The rabbis believed that adultery was primarily a crime of property. A wife belongs to you, or a wife belongs to someone else, and so sexual infidelity was against the man who the woman belonged to. Now that should get under your skin. It's a double standard. 
It denies even the male and female in the image of God that Jesus evokes here. But I want you to notice what he says here in verse uh, 11. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. He makes it explicit here. He recognizes the double standard and he denies it. In fact, if you look very closely at the Old Testament passages that deal with divorce, Deuteronomy 24, Malachi chapter 2, they aren't giving a prerogative to men only. They're trying to protect women from the sin of men. Okay. But here's the thing. For us, when we recognize double standards in sexuality, our tendency, at least as moderns, is to loosen the standard. We recognize that the rules aren't fair and we loosen. Men are treated this way and women are not, and so women also should be treated this way. Jesus' instinct is the opposite. He says the rules are the rules, and that applies to everyone, and he tightens it for all people. We see the same instinct in Paul. Now, I know that sometimes Paul uh, gets accused of being misogynistic, but actually, he is surprisingly radical in how egalitarian his understanding of gender is. I'll give you an example, okay? Paul calls men who desire leadership in the church to be the husband of one wife. The language he uses there is actually a little bit more narrow, a little bit more specific. He says, a one-woman man. Now, why would he put it that way? Why wouldn't he say, because he could have, like we translate in English, a husband of one wife. It's because he's evoking a well-known, understood cultural idea, the univera. Okay? Rome also had a significant double standard in sexuality. Okay? And so for the woman, the ideal, the virtue was univera, one man. And the univera was one who was successfully faithful and had no sex before marrying one man, and who after being faithful for the duration of that marriage, maintained her widowhood for the rest of her life and never married again. There was no such standard for men in the Roman world. Men were assumed to be promiscuous. In fact, Demosthenes, uh, a writer from the ancient Roman world, says we have wives to give us legitimate children, concubine to take care of our sexual needs, and and uh, I can't remember the last word he uses, we also have women for companionship. And that was just the standard. It was just understood. Okay. When Paul evokes that idea and reverses it, so now it's not a one-man woman, but a one-woman man, it's an act of justice. It's an act of equalizing. Again, not by loosening, but by tightening. Now, very quickly, let me deal with another thing. It can be hard to get the whole Jesus when we look at the New Testament. And this is especially true on issues of sexuality. And so sometimes people will look at Jesus and they look, look, Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and that word clearly means and includes sexual sinners. Look, Jesus receives and spends time with prostitutes. Look, Jesus uh, takes those who are on the fringes of sexual infidelity And he embraces them. Consider John chapter 8, right? The woman caught in adultery. What does Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. We go, how beautiful, how accepting. And that's true. But it's also true that the self-same Jesus is incredibly rigid on his requirements in sexual righteousness. Remember, it's Jesus who not only here says, uh, 
says, let what God has joined together, let not man separate, but says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you even look at another person with sexual intentions in your heart, you're already unfaithful. You're already an adulterer. We need both Jesuses because it's the same Jesus. The idea here is that sexual sin is so significant that Jesus had to come. He had to come. He had to die. He had to bear the penalty for those sins. But he is also so loving that he was willing to come and die for those selfsame people. Yes, to the woman, at, uh, woman caught in adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, directly following, go and sin no more. The two go hand in hand. They participate together. Now, very quickly here, I, 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 want to, I want to just talk practically about this issue. Again, we don't have time to deal with this issue in the nuance that it requires. All I want to develop in you this morning is this instinct, this instinct towards God's design, towards the center of God's plan instead of the permittable boundaries. How far away from it can I go? If God is God, if God is good, if God is wise, if God sent Jesus Christ, who was both necessary for our salvation and willing to give it, then we should have a center-set orientation to these things. The question in our life, even in hard issues of difficulties in marriage, should not be, what are my options? Instead, it should be, what would Jesus have me do? How did God design this? What is the purpose? Okay. And then second thing I want to point out is when you study this issue broadly, God meets people where they're at. Remember that, that uh, statement on, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that was actually not about a woman being divorced from her husband, but a woman who's been divorced twice and if she can go back to the first husband? That law meets the woman and the man where they're at. And this is consistent. Okay? So in other words, being faithful to Jesus now depends on where you currently are, not on where you wish you hadn't gotten to. And that's significant. In fact, let me add to, you, uh, or let me add to that idea and basically say this, that the way we see that play out in Deuteronomy is that an inappropriate divorce is not made right by another divorce. Now, there's so much more that needs to be said here, but I, I just want to impress this final idea on you. Okay. The Bible sees two ways of faithfulness in following Jesus, marriage and singleness. Okay. And by singleness, just to be explicit, we're talking about celibacy, singleness apart from sexual action. Okay. And so marriage is the one place where sex can be expressed biblically as God designed it and flourish. Everywhere else it brings carnage. Okay. But there is this possibility, this plausibility of singleness. And not only is that way open to the divorced, but it's also open to the widow. If your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. The Bible says that. But Paul also says, but you should really consider sticking with singleness. He says, in fact, I think that it's better, and he makes a case for this in 1 Corinthians 7. If you've never explored a positive view of singleness from a Christian perspective, 
There's a sermon series from a few months ago on the website called Embracing Singleness that I'd encourage you to listen to. But here's the point. This morning in this church, we don't have three categories of being on these issues, single, married, and divorced. We have single and married. Divorced is not a label or a stigma that you should, should bear, okay? You may be a sexual sinner, I assume that you are, but you're also a forgiven sinner. If these realities impact you this morning, there is still the present tense question of where does Jesus meet you now, and he meets you where you are. And from there he says, come and follow me. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And so there may be changes in your future in looking at following Jesus, that's true. But we have to watch out for this change in identity that leaves people with the stigma of divorce permanently as a second-class citizen in the church, as those who are just condemned to loneliness or these types of things. There's, again, so many things to say, but here's the thing. God created marriage. What God created, he called good. And then he calls us to pursue it. We see a similar thing with children. Look at verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Now, we are not told what the big deal is. Parents have little children. They bring them to Jesus. They want Jesus to pray for him. They want Jesus to touch him and give him a blessing. And the disciples get all up in a huff about it. And we're not told why. I assume it's because Jesus doesn't have time for your little kid, thank you very much. I assume that covers the bandwidth of what's going on here. But Jesus, verse 14, when he saw it, he was indignant. He was angry. He was upset. Why? Because the disciples had misrepresented Jesus. And how had they done so? In saying that Jesus has no interest in children. Now, in the ancient world, children didn't bring a lot to the table of society. They were a mouth to feed, and maybe someday they would be a participant, but they don't have a lot to offer. That's what it means to be a child. Okay? I remember uh, hearing a youth pastor once nail down what childhood looks like when he explained that if you want to understand a baby, babies suck. They just take. That's all they do. Okay. But either way here, Jesus looks at this, and he, he's angry. He says, no. And then what does he say? He says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. He's not bothered by their limitations or their immaturity or their lack of being able to participate or bring anything to the table. They may be the least in the society of Jesus' day, but they are humans created in the image of God. They are of value and of worth, and Jesus wants them. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that following Jesus doesn't just shape our understanding of marriage, but it also shapes our understanding of children. Christians should love children because Jesus loves children. And it's actually for a similar reason. Just as we saw in marriage, God is for marriage because it's one of the ways that he's chosen to put on display the relationship he desires to have with us that the two becoming one flesh in marriage somehow, mysteriously, miraculously points to the same intimate relationship that God wants to have with you. A relationship of unity and fellowship, of devotion and joy and even intimacy. 
In the same way here, the parent-child relationship personifies the same thing. And when we distance ourselves from children and say, we can come, but you cannot, we come on some other ground than the only ground we can come before Christ. In fact, notice what he says. He says, verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Making certain distinctions between adults and children, between what they bring to the table and what we bring to the table, in saying you're not old enough or tall enough or mature enough or these types of things, we assume we're old enough or tall enough or mature enough. Now, what he's really talking about here is is uh, what he calls childlikeness. And let's be clear here, the idea isn't one of innocence. The idea isn't that children uh, come and you know, they're, they're still f- fresh and untainted. That is only an idea that people without siblings and people without children maintain. Okay? The idea is instead is one of dependency. Children come both from a place of need and assuming that you can meet the need. They just come to parents and ask, and they do it all day long. And they don't come with some sort of a bargain and say, hey, you know, I'm really hungry, so I was thinking, if I go rake the yard, would you make me a sandwich? That's not how it works. What he's recognizing here is that when we come before God, we come, one, in a place of need, and two, we have to come trusting. This is what it says in Hebrews. He who desires or seeks God must believe two things. First, that he is. And second, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what it means to have childlike faith. That's what it means to enter the kingdom like a child. And again, that's good news for us because as we talk about sexual immorality, as we talk about adultery, as we talk about divorce, we also very quickly begin to describe need, less to offer, problems, sin. Jesus says, don't send the children away. Don't send the needy away. And he says, come and trust, come. Look at verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. How does Jesus feel about children? He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. It's not that he has a special place for children. That's the self-same Jesus and what he offers everyone. Embrace, love, belonging, blessing. Listen, there is one practical application here. In the same way in our modern world where there's a lot of good reasons to get a divorce. There's also a lot of good reasons to not have children. There's reasons that suggest that children are primarily a burden or an obstacle or a hindrance or a difficulty. But biblically, children are the gift of God. In fact, and you'll see this if you come with me on Wednesday nights and we look at the Bible, biblically, children and marriage go hand in hand. Now, not always. Infertility is a real thing. And not instantly. Wisdom is a real thing. Okay? Those things matter. 
my issue here is not if there's not good reasons to not have children or not good reasons to not get married. Those are real things. My issue is that we need to discern the good reasons from the bad. Jesus loves children and sees them as a blessing even though they bring nothing to the table. Side note, they bring something to the table. But I want you to notice here that both of these operate as windows. One, marriage, and this is something you need to know. If you've experienced infidelity, if you've experienced divorce, if you've been unfaithful, the picture may be tarnished in your life, but it is not made untrue. Jesus will never be unfaithful to you. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus will never operate as we do and come up with good reasons to go elsewhere. He knows the reasons. His love is faithful and true. And with children, like Anna was sharing when, he, when she opened up the service, that unconditional love that comes with parenthood, in Christ, that's available to each and every one of us. You don't have to come with your bargains or your promises or your all do better next times. You come assuming you have need and you come assuming that your Father in heaven loves you enough to meet that need. That's the truth. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that the way to heaven is not through being faithful to one spouse and loving kids. But if you've experienced the way to heaven provided in Jesus Christ, it will change the way you view those things. We need to keep our horse properly before the cart. God came to save sinners. And then he offers us something better. What John chapter 10 calls abundant life. But that abundant life isn't freedom to live like hell the way you've done before Jesus. It's a freedom to experience God's great design for you. And it's not just a return to the garden. It's redemption, which means it does something significantly more than you expected. It offers you new ways of being and open ways. And ways that demonstrate that Christ is the greatest husband there's ever been. And that God is the greatest father that's ever been. Let's pray. Father, two things are always true. No matter how we measure our need for you, no matter how big we dig the pit of our need for you, we never dig it deep enough. We never see fully and completely how bad things really are, how deep the idolatry goes, how overwhelming and destructive our selfishness is. But there's also a second truth, which is no matter how deep we dig that pit, as you pour your love into it, it always overflows it. Your grace is sufficient. It meets us where we are, and it gives us an, a new identity. In fact, that same passage in Ephesians chapter 5 says that Jesus is committed like a faithful husband to continuously wash us with the water of, wood, uh, of the word until he can present us blameless in Christ. 
You're so devoted to us. And that means we can bring our brokenness and our mistakes and our questions and our confusions and all the complexity that comes with sin. And we can trust you with it. We can know that you will bring healing, that you will fix what is broken, that you can set right what's gone wrong, and that it's not too late, that we're not too far gone, that from here, right now today, you receive us, you welcome us, and you say, come follow me. I pray for every person here that they would do so. And I pray that out of personal experience, having taste and having seen that the Lord is good, that his ways are good, that he truly is a wise and loving father. And I pray, Lord, that we would operate from a place of grace, not only with those who we feel bring nothing to the table, who are just the outcasts, the children, but also those who bring history, who bring a backstory, who bring a mess, because we cannot distinguish ourselves and say they don't deserve and we do. All we bring to the table in our relationship with you is need. And we thank you, Lord, that that's all you ask. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.